Once again, good morning. How you all doing? Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16? This morning, in our study in Matthew's Gospel, we are in chapter 16, starting with verse 27, which is really a continuation of a teaching that Jesus introduced starting in verse 24. So let's back up and read those verses again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, of course, the theme of these verses is discipleship, which as we already defined last week, is synonymous with salvation. You don't accept Christ and get saved one day and then down the road get serious and become a disciple. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a Christian. It's all the same thing. But the larger context is the coming kingdom, which only true disciples of Christ will enter. And the Lord makes sure that we understand that a true disciple is one who is willing to deny themselves daily, to take up their cross, and to follow Him. Then, the Lord challenges them and us, in verse 26, to choose the coming kingdom, which is eternal, over this life, which is temporal. With that as the backdrop, He now, in verse 27, gives this promise. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels... And then he will reward each according to his works. The term Son of Man is a messianic title for Jesus Christ. Someday he is promising he will come again as Messiah to the earth to establish his kingdom. He further describes his coming this way. He said he's going to come in the Father's glory. Now, guys, that's a reference to the Shekinah glory of God, which speaks of his resplendent Presence. In fact, the Hebrew word for Shekinah literally means that which dwells. And it was used as a reference to how God dwelt among his people uh, at various times. And as he dwelt among his people, how his glory shone among them. Primarily, as he dwelt with them in the wilderness for those 40 years, how that they saw his resplendent glory shining forth in the Shekinah, as the pillar of fire. Remember that? That led them in the wilderness. Also, we read how that in Solomon's temple, when the temple was dedicated, the presence of God, or the Shekinah glory, came into the Holy of Holies and hovered above the mercy seat, the throne of God on the earth, and lit the entire room up with the glory of God. We also read the culmination of all human history. We're going to live in a city called New Jerusalem, and it's not going to need the light of the sun or moon, for the glory of God will be its light. So God shines forth among His people. It's called His Shekinah. And He said that, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, listen, and then He will reward each according to His works. And guys, this is the conclusion of verses 24 to 26, where Jesus challenged people to decide now which life they were going to live for, this life or the life to come. Verse 27 is the promise. 
that someday every person who has ever lived is going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for that decision, whatever decision they made, whether to live for themselves now or to live for the Lord. They will stand before him on that day, and then each one will receive the reward for the choice they made and the works each choice produced. In other words, those who choose right now to give their lives to Jesus Christ, to choose right now to become one of his disciples, which means to live for the purposes of God on this earth. Well, someday they're going to receive the rewards of that decision, which is heaven and all of its glory, joy, and blessings that are contained therein for all eternity. On the other hand, those who choose to live for their to live their lives for themselves right now, to live for their own pleasures here on the earth, which often is rooted in many acts of rebellion against what God has commanded. So much pleasure today that people are experiencing is in direct violation with what God has said we are not to do in His commandments. But those who have decided today they're going to live for themselves, they're going to live for their own desires, will someday receive the rewards of that decision, which is hell, with all of its weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth contained therein for all eternity. And you know, I'm convinced that most, if not all, of the evil in the world can be attributed to the fact that there is no fear of God in the hearts of the people who do these things. They don't believe that a day of reckoning is coming. They don't believe that. They don't believe that a day of reckoning is coming. Either they don't believe in God altogether, or if they believe in Him, they don't believe that He is a God who is going to judge sin someday and send people to hell who live contrary to His laws and to His commandments. It's amazing how deceived this generation is. Even those who believe in God, I can't remember the statistics, 76%, I believe, of people who believe in God believe in heaven. Only 6% of those people who believe in God believe in hell. Well, isn't that convenient? It's just not biblical. Because the same verses oftentimes that speak of heaven being eternal speaks of hell being eternal as well. I'll give you one passage. We could look at dozens. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 9. Where Paul said in verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, because the Thessalonians were being persecuted by the people around them for their faith. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with, listen, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So there is a day of reckoning coming. Man thinks he can live his life in rebellion against God with impunity. God is saying, no, there is a day coming. And just because God hasn't judged the person yet for the way they're living doesn't mean they're not going to have to stand before him then and give an account. So we've seen the promise of his second coming, verse 27. Next, we want to look at the preview of his second coming, starting in verse 28, where Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Now, in saying this, Jesus isn't suggesting that some of his disciples would live long enough to see his actual second coming. He is saying that, as we're about to see, that some of his disciples would have the privilege of seeing a preview of his second coming glory. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, what mountain is this? There's discrepancies. People disagree. Let me just tell you what I think. Since chapter 16, verse 1 tells us they were all the way up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. That is not too far from the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is one of the highest, I think it actually is the highest uh, mountain in, uh, well, it's just outside of Israel technically, um, but in that whole region. It's about 9,200 feet high. I'm not saying they went all the way up to the top, but they went up uh, onto Mount Hermon, I believe. And there it says Jesus was transfigured. The word transfigured translates a Greek word. We get our English word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis. It's a word, listen, that doesn't just mean a change of outward appearance. It's a word that means a change of form or structure. It's the same word used to describe what happens to a caterpillar when it changes from one form to another and becomes a beautiful butterfly. Some believe that Jesus Christ, his earthly body for this short, brief period of time, was transformed into his glorified body. Now, if this is a preview of his second coming, well, he's coming the second time with a glorified body. So it could be that for a brief moment, he underwent this metamorphosis where his physical body was transformed into his glorified body. The effect was striking. As we read, Jesus became so bright in appearance, he was difficult to look at, like trying to look at the sun. Okay? In fact, in verse 2 it says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This really impacted the apostles that were up there. In fact, John recalled this event many years later as he recorded in his gospel, uh, chapter 1, he said, And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, this was a preview of Jesus' second coming glory. Here is how the Lord described the actual event. Turn to Matthew 24, verses 27 and 30. He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I've always imagined this event this way. Of course, we're going to be coming back with them eventually on white horses, having been raptured, and then the tribulation period taken place for seven years, and then we come back with him to establish his kingdom. So we're not going to have to guess on that day we're going to be part of it. But I've always imagined this uh, event uh, as, as, the, as the earth is going through this uh, tribulation and all. I imagine darkness. 
I imagine hopelessness. I imagine just this, the, the worst kind of a dreary, dark, depressing day. And suddenly, here comes Jesus breaking through the clouds, lighting up the sky with his second coming glory. He says, like lightning flashes across a dark sky from east to west, I'm going to light the sky up with my second coming glory. And every eye is going to see me. You know, no one is, every eye will see him as he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. Well, all right, we've seen the promise of the second coming. Number two, the preview of the second coming. Let's finish by looking at the prophets of his second coming. Starting in verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So this was the Shekinah glory of the Father. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hang on to that. We'll get back to it. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now look, out of all of the Old Testament saints that could have appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, why Moses and Elijah? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. But before we get to that, I just want to look for a moment at Peter's statement where he said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did he say that? I think Luke says he do not know what to say. Okay? And, you know, we just overwhelmed. We just blurted out something dumb. But I don't think it was something dumb. It was rooted in something. And, and the New Testament chronologists have determined that the month that the transfiguration took place in was the month of Tishri, the Jewish month of Tishri, the seventh month, which corresponds to our September, October, last part of September, early part of October, that kind of thing. Uh, and if that's true, then we're about six months from the cross at this point. But during the month of Tishri, the Jews celebrated three feasts. The last one was the most joyful of all the seven feasts. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Lord, shall we build for you, Moses, three tabernacles? It could be at this very moment that they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus and his disciples were way up in Lebanon by this time. They had even left Israel, crossed over into modern-day Lebanon. Why? They were hanging, laying low. Uh, things had gotten way too hot in Jerusalem. I mean, a lot of people wanted to kill him, and he didn't want to rush the timetable of his father. He, so he just, I'll lay low, I, you know, not to provoke anybody to try to kill me before the time. So they're up there, uh, in Lebanon, far from Jerusalem. And you know, the Jews were raised with these feasts. And the Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous of all the Jewish feasts. No doubt it was on the disciples' minds. And could it be that when Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus, Peter just blurted out, thinking of tabernacles, the feast and all, Lord, we can't be in Jerusalem making tabernacles for ourselves. Can we make you guys some? Okay? Can we make a tabernacle for you, Moses and Elijah? Let me just say this. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven 
day feast that began on the 15th of the month and ran through the 21st. The Feast of Tabernacles was both an agricultural and a memorial feast, an agricultural holiday because it took place at the time of the great fall harvest, which is why it was also called the Feast of Ingathering, as they would gather in the harvest. All right? And if you understand anything about agrarian cultures, those that, that lived off of farming and things, the, the fall harvest was the greatest time of celebration of the entire year. Whether you're talking about the Jewish culture or even pagan cultures, those crops represented life. To have an abundance of crops meant you had an abundant life for the next year. So this was all connected to their excitement okay, of this feast. The Feast of Ingathering, how they were commemorating and celebrating what God had done and bringing a great harvest. And it was a time of, of rejoicing, a time of thanksgiving uh, to God for all that he had provided. So it was an agricultural feast, but it was also a memorial feast in the sense that God wanted them to remember something very important. Now, you, re- you have to understand, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the families had to move out of the comforts of their homes. And they had to build for themselves these little tabernacles or booths or huts. All right, And God gave them specific instructions how to do it. Take leafy branches, okay, palm branches or something else, and kind of weave them together, making from the, them this, this hut. Okay, um, Leave enough space in the, between the branches in the ceiling that you can lay, out it, lay under this thing at night and see the stars. Leave enough space in the sides uh, of this thing, the branches, so that the breeze could blow through. Why? Because God says, I want you to remember the 40 years your forefathers endured hardship in the, in the wilderness. As they walk with me, that they eventually could come in and you might have as their descendants this good land where you can build yourself houses, permanent structures to live in. We didn't have to live out in the elements. Hey, look, it cost your forefathers quite a bit to give you what you take for granted. America, listen up. We're about ready to celebrate one of our great memorial feasts, aren't we? The 4th of July, Independence Day. And our forefathers fought and died and sacrificed quite a bit that we might have the liberties and the freedoms we are taking for granted and, by the way, in danger of losing. So these memorials were very important. Because they not only reminded the adults, never forget what God has done, but also as the family moved out into this booth for a week, the kids, I'm sure it was a great fun for the kids, camping out for a week, what, you know, what kid, the parents, maybe not so much. But the idea was when the children asked their father, Dad, why do we do this every year? Why do we leave our house to move out into this, this tabernacle? Then the fathers could say, son or daughter, let me explain why we do this. It's because our forefathers, what they went through, that we might have this good land. And it was to remind or teach the next generation of the goodness of God, never to take it for granted. Well, okay, getting back to the question I just kind of left dangling out there. Um, As they were on top of this mount, okay, and uh, Jesus is transfigured. Um, Remember now, he is being transfigured with his second coming glory. And all of a sudden, who appears up there? Moses and Elijah. How Peter knew it was Moses and Elijah, he never met Moses or Elijah. How did Peter know this was Moses and Elijah? 
the same way we're going to know Moses and Elijah when we get to heaven. We're going to know people. People say, well, am I going to know people that you're going to know everybody? You're going to know Adam. You're going to, hey, that's Paul. All right? Hey, there's Moses. There's Aunt Jenny who died, you know, 10 years ago. You're going to know everybody in heaven because heaven is not going to be less than it is right now. It's going to be more. Okay? Um, but why, again, Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or David or Daniel? Well, I believe it was for two reasons. Number one, to close the old covenant and establish the new covenant. To help God's people transition from the old into the new. Remember now, Moses was the great lawgiver. He represents the law. Elijah was considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He represents the prophets. And that phrase, the law and the prophets, is used to condense all of the Old Testament scriptures... And also, along with it, the Old Covenant. You remember Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is all of God's word summed up. How about Matthew 22, verse 40? Jesus said, On these two commandments, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hang what? All the law and the prophets. It's just a condensed way of saying all the Old Testament scriptures or the Old Covenant. Okay? As Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration to Jesus, and then, of course, along with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, suddenly we read in verse 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, what? Hear him. Do you get it? Hear him. In other words, the law and the prophets, the Father is saying, pointed to my Son, Jesus Christ, and the new covenant. And now the Jewish people were to move forward in their faith, beyond the old covenant. They were to embrace their Messiah and listen to what he was teaching them about the kingdom and salvation. It was never about keeping laws to get into heaven. It was about those laws teaching that no one could ever really keep those laws perfectly so that they would someday cry out for another way and the one who would stand before them, full of grace and truth, would say at one point, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So... The first reason Moses and Elijah, because Moses represented the law, Elijah the prophets, it was, it was the Father's way of saying you need now to transition from the Old Covenant into the New. But here's something that you may not have understood or realized. The second, I believe, very important reason why it was Moses and Elijah was because, in a sense, they were having a little conference with the Lord Jesus Christ about Jesus' death and second coming. In fact, we read in Luke 9, verse 31, that the topic of discussion that Moses and Elijah were having with the Lord was they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure is a Greek word we get the word exodus from. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. One author put it this way. Just as the exodus out of Egypt under Moses led God's people out of the bondage of sin and slavery, 
the exodus of Jesus out of the grave would lead believers out of the bondage of sin and death. However, I believe that Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus and the topic of the conversation was the second coming because I believe Moses and Elijah are going to play a very, very important role in the time just prior to Jesus' second coming. I believe, this is me, I believe Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. Now let me explain how this works. and I'm not going to get into a whole teaching on Revelation 11. If you're interested, you can get the CD or go on our web and access that teaching. It's free. Just download it, listen to it. Chapter 11 of Revelation. But I, if you don't know me very well, I am a pre-trib guy. I believe the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period begins. Now, what happens at the time of the rapture? All true believers in Jesus Christ are going to be taken up into heaven. When that happens, not a single believer will be left on the planet earth. Which means God will have no witness. There will be nobody left to be his witness. To tell people about him. All the true saints are gone. We're taken up to meet the Lord in the air, right? And God never leaves himself without a witness. And so immediately he brings back Moses and Elijah which I don't have time to get into, but, you know, how that all worked. But if you look at Revelation, and God talks about my two witnesses. In the Greek, it's emphatic. The two witnesses of mine indicating these two guys had been used before on the earth for God's purpose. And during their ministry, which will be conducted in the first three and a half years of the seven, seven years tribulation period, they will preach during the first three and a half years. Right after the rapture happens, boom, they're going to show up. And the world is going to hate them. Because the world is not going to want to hear what they have to say. Their message will be repent. They will be like they were Old Testament prophets. And the main theme of the Old Testament prophets was repent and get right with God. And the world has always hated that message, hasn't it? And the world will try to kill them. But the Bible says, in the manner through which somebody tries to kill them, they themselves will be killed in that same manner. God will not let these guys die until he's done with them. But their ministry is going to be absolutely incredible. They are going to convert, the Bible says, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Now, I'm not saying that will be the limit of their ministry, but that will be a big part of it. Can you imagine? And we read in Revelation 7, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 144,000 Jewish Paul the Apostles is the idea. Can you imagine God unleashing 144,000 Paul the Apostles on the world? They have the ability to Twitter, tweet, whatever else they can, you know. They don't have to be in one place like these guys used to have to be. They can use technology. They can use Facebook and everything else to get the message out. They're going to have such an incredible ministry that millions upon millions upon millions of people will be converted, most of whom will be killed by the Antichrist. You can read Revelation 7 and 14. As John sees a number in heaven so innumerable, he can't even count them of those who were martyred by the Antichrist for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The scribes were the professional Old Testament scholars of their day. And the reason they taught that Elijah 
had to come first before the Messiah, who would then establish the kingdom, was because God said that. It was a promise that God gave to the prophet Malachi. In fact, it was the last promise, in fact, the last statement of God to close out the Old Testament period. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, God speaking, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And that's just speaking about how Elijah, but as we also said, Moses, is going to be used by God to turn many people to righteousness during the tribulation period. Now, There are those who believe that John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Elijah. No, absolutely wrong. Get our teaching on Matthew 11, uh, around verse 14. We talked about that. No, John was not the reincarnation of Elijah. There is no such thing as reincarnation taught in the Bible. The Bible teaches resurrection, not reincarnation. But John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, not the literal Elijah. You see... When God sent the angel Gabriel to Zacharias, the uh, husband of of, uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had been barren for many, many years. They were old by this time. And they had prayed for a son for years and had given up maybe 20, 30 years ago. They were too old. And God sent the angel to them and said, Zacharias, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son and you are going to name his name John. And he said... The Spirit of God will go before him in the power, excuse me, will go before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that second part, he's quoting Malachi, isn't he? And that's why a lot of people thought that John was Elijah reincarnated. No, absolutely not. All right. John became a type of Elijah. A type of Elijah. In fact, as Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 14, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who was to come. Now, when Jesus said that in Matthew 11, uh, John had not been beheaded yet. And what is Jesus saying? If the nation of Israel had been willing to accept Jesus as their Messiah, then John the Baptist, listen, would have been the fulfillment of of Malachi's prophecy, and Jesus would have established the kingdom. But the nation's leaders rejected Jesus as their Messiah and John as his herald. And so we read in verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, kind of. Again, Jesus was saying that if the nation would have received my herald, the herald of my first coming, John, and would have embraced me as their Messiah, a few did, many did not. The leadership didn't. Jesus was saying if the nation would have received John's ministry and received me as their Messiah, then John would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. And I would have established the kingdom. But because they rejected John and had him killed, and have rejected me as their Messiah and are going to kill me also, then the literal 
fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi will come to pass. Elijah, literally Elijah, will come at one point. As I said, I believe he and Moses are the two witnesses. And Elijah will be the herald of Jesus' second coming. John the Baptist was used to turn many hearts to the Messiah. And Elijah and then Moses will be used by God to turn many hearts of the people of this world to Jesus before he returns the second time. All right, that's the explanation of this passage. But what else, as we close, what else can we take away from this passage that would be a help to us in living our lives for Jesus before his return? Well, let me read verses 6 to 8 again. And when the disciples heard it, heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, listen, they saw no one but Jesus only. You know, I see in that phrase a message from the Holy Spirit. A message that will help us live in the time prior to Jesus' second coming. Because that's the context, isn't it? Seven words that contain the secret for living as a believer in this present evil age in these last days until Jesus comes. And guys, it's not profound. It's not the, Some of the most powerful truths of God's word are not so profound. Nobody has figured them out. They're basic. They're elemental. They're just right. God has given them, given the principle all over the place. But we have forgotten it. He said, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What does it mean to see no one but Jesus only? Very simply, it means to keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. It means not letting yourself be distracted by anyone or anything from following after him. Wasn't that the whole idea in verse 24? Taking up your cross and following me? Wasn't that the whole idea? You're never going to follow Jesus if you're not keeping your eyes on Jesus, right? It means not letting yourself be distracted by anything, by a career, by material possessions, by a relationship, or anything. I know a lot of young gals who think, even though that Christian gals, who know that God has said that they are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, you gals, God bless you, you, a lot of young ladies think that they have been placed on this earth to help some guy, you know, who is just a rebel. I don't know what it is about you girls and rebels. You're drawn to rebels, many of you. But you want to fix the rebel. You want to save the rebel. I, I admire that, all right? I admire the fact that you want to uh, help someone, come to Christ, get right with God. But you don't do it by marrying them. And that relationship, although well-intentioned, is misguided and unbiblical and dangerous. Because you get involved with an unbeliever and you even marry this person. You talk about distraction, folks. It's major distraction. It will jerk you away from Jesus. Even though you want to keep your eyes on him and you want to serve him, that person you're unequally yoked together with will often not allow that. And I think that to see only Jesus means that we let nothing come between him and us. Look, the time is short. The work is great. The labors are few. We can't afford to lose any of you guys. 
you know, to the world. We can't afford to lose any Christians to backsliding because we need you to stay in the race. We need you to fight the fight. I mean, the souls of men and women, many of whom are people we love, are at stake. And yet you're in a spiritual war. And the God of this world, the devil, has engineered this whole world system. This whole world system. And everything in it to distract you from following Jesus once you're saved or to keep you from coming to Jesus if you're not saved. How does he do it? John said it. He has designed everything to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He has orchestrated this world to be vanity fair, and we're on our way to the celestial city, as John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. It is so easy as you have to go through vanity fair, which is what we're living in, to get distracted away from what's important. That's why Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven and not in the earth. To do that, you've got to keep your eyes focused on the eternal, not on the temporal. Paul said, have the mind of Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Do not be entangled with the cares of this life because it will take you out of the race and neutralize your effectiveness for Jesus. How can we do this? Very simply, keep your eyes on Jesus. I love the chorus of that wonderful song. We all know it. The one that goes like this, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Simple, isn't it? It's not that difficult, is it? Simple to learn, not not so easy to live, I guess. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember that, and I promise, this is my last closing. Uh, Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18? He says, I'll paraphrase, you need to focus on Jesus. And as you focus on him, you will be transformed into his image by the Holy Spirit day by day. You know the word transformed, there's the same word metamorphosis we're talking about here. Do you want to be transformed, not superficially, but actually? Do you want to be transformed from your present condition into the image of Christ you have to keep your eyes on Jesus in a sense of how would Jesus live in this situation what would Jesus do what would he say how would Jesus think and then you ask God for the grace to apply that in your own life and as you do the spirit of God begins to transform you he turns you into another person from the person you have always been to the person he wants you to be Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. That's the secret. May God give us the grace to apply it into our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, for your patience. And Lord, we desire to be faithful witnesses. We desire to be true disciples, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses each day, and following after our Lord. Lord, the work is great. The labors are few. Lord, we pray you would send forth more labors into the harvest. That's true. But Lord, give us grace not to be distracted. We're so prone, Lord, to be distracted. So many of the people I got saved with 30-some years ago, we started to run our race strong. I don't know what's happened to many of them. They've dropped out. The world is taking them captive. 
Lord, give us grace not to be one of those. Not to be like Demas, who forsakes you having loved this present world. But to be like Paul, who ran his race strong and came to the end of his life and said, I have, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And Lord, give us grace to be able to say that. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.